special guest today is Mr. Ian Barker. Ian is the Director of Education for the United Soccer Coaches, or formerly known as the NSCAA. Uh, Ian is a fellow Englishman like myself. He moved to the USA to pursue a career in soccer. I feel this episode is vital in helping the development of coaches anywhere and also parents. It gives them some advice on what to look for and what to do for their kids. I hope you all enjoy. Okay, Ian Barker, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Um, Mitchell. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. And uh, so, Ian... Uh, Ian is the Director of Education for the United Soccer Coaches. Uh, Ian, I'm just going to pass over to you, and if you could give us a little bit of information about yourself and how you got into this position, and that'd be awesome. Sure. Um, <laughs> short version, right? So, um, a native of Great Britain, um, a, a keen amateur youth player, um, not, not really um, a legitimate opportunity to play professional football, not really. So, university, and then... Um, through academic exchange as opposed to summer soccer camps. I came to America in basically in 87. So I got a coaching badge when I was at university and I did a little bit of sort of player coach for the college team, but all of my coaching has been basically American based. So I'm I'm certainly a US coach despite the accent. Um, 21 years of coaching college, eight with the University of Wisconsin men's division one team, and then 13 even happier years with a division three college called McAllister college in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, Over that time, I was also for 10 years, the state director of coaching for Minnesota youth soccer. So USYS, um, 140 clubs, sometimes 65,000 kids um, and driving around getting out of Minneapolis and St. Paul and doing the real job of a state director, in my opinion, and getting out into the, the boundaries. So a lot of time in Canada and the Dakotas as well. And then, um, uh, gosh, nine years ago this February, um, I was feeling a little bit um, unchallenged at my Division Three college job in St. Paul, Minnesota. And so I, I applied for the position of Director of Coaching for what was the NSCA, now United Soccer Coaches. And my predecessor, who was a friend and somebody who was gone by the time I applied, um, was an Englishman. And I felt really strongly like United Soccer Coaches or the National Soccer Coaches Association of America should have a, an American accent. But there, it was a job that was logical for me to apply for based on my resume. And so it was really to get my resume out there to go through a process. And just really, it, was, it wasn't a really a fully committed desire to take the position, but through um, a process of elimination, they offered me the position and I took it and I've been in it for nine years. And um, so, you know, a, a lot of your listeners will be familiar with all the coaching badges, but United Soccer, Co- sorry, US Soccer, uh, FA, um, Sovereign FA, they have their A licenses, pro licenses down. And then somewhat unique to America, we have this sort of secondary coach award process, um, which you wouldn't find in most countries, but we've we, historically it's been here with United Soccer Coaches. So I direct that. And um, of course, our organization is exclusively a coach membership organization. Um, anybody can join it. Anybody can take our courses, um, but we don't. We have a, a luxury over most of you guys in the game because we don't register children 
and we don't do any punitive actions on coaching passes or parent behavior. So um, you either have a neutral opinion about us or you generally have a favorable opinion about us simply because of the, the, the position we hold in the soccer space. Okay, so you, um, you mentioned when you first started uh, doing your coaching courses and coaching badges. Uh, can you explain through the process of that? Because I know you've done, uh, you've been with multiple yeah. associations. Yeah, um, at my university, my university had a very strong PE department and I, I was not a PE student, but a lot of my teammates and friends were. And um, as a typical in the sort of culture of, of English college football, I was the club captain and we had four teams and I was one of the one of the leaders of the group, I think in my second or third year. And I became aware that the English FA would bring coaching badges to universities because we have good facilities and then the students could take the badges. So for the PE students, it was, it was a really valuable thing. And for me, it was kind of a fun thing and just kept me playing more football, which I wanted to do. So um, I brought the English FA onto our campus and it was typically sort of Saturday morning, Sunday afternoons when the teams were not playing. And we did a, what was at the time was called the English FA premier, uh, sorry, pr preliminary badge, preliminary badge, and really enjoyed it. And very quickly understood that my limitations as a player, um, I compensated by being a little bit more of a student of the game, if you will, right? Because I really wasn't a particularly talented athlete or player at least. And so very quickly, I realized I had a little bit of a vocation for the coaching and understanding the game. Um, technically and tactically like that. And so when I came to the States, uh, really because of the academic exchange and the relationships I've made, but then I found that soccer was very, uh, very popular here back in the late 80s yeah. with the youth. And um, also you could get compensated, that's to say paid. Uh, I was like, well, I can marry this somewhat serendipitous um, opportunity and, and uh, enthusiasm I'd got in England with this opportunity in the US. So that's how I started. So my very first badge was with the English FA, subsequently with US soccer, with the NSCAA. And then I've got, um, I've been to Germany and got a coaching badge with the DFB. Um, I've worked in Africa with um, their confederation teaching, not, not as a student. And then of course, you know, um, been around the world doing other badges and, and courses. And what have you found to be uh, like the biggest differences between a lot of those courses? Because like, I've, I've taken courses with the English FA. I've taken uh, some of you guys. I've taken with the USSF and currently with the Irish FA. And all of those courses are vastly different. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think if I was in broad terms, there's soccer football content, you know, X's and O's, feet on the grass. How do you receive a ball? How do you pass the ball? How do you work the combination you know, systems, formations? And then there's all the other things like leadership and motivation and sports psychology and conflict resolution, which I think is absolutely fascinating and absolutely necessary. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. But then there's also the, the middle kind of content like performance analysis, right? And technology use. So I think there's, in my mind, there's sort of these three broad buckets and the best courses are the one that can create that synergy of those three all critical components of learning about the game and being um, being from the grassroots level up to the highest levels of, of professional sport. Um, 
Now, given that in America, particularly given the diversity of candidates you get, you get an incredible diversity of candidates in any course. So I know you recently took a couple of US soccer courses. You've got people with great playing backgrounds. You've got people that have never played, but are very academic. You've got people who are full-time in the game and people who are um, volunteers. And you don't get that really in any other coaching badges in the world. So the challenge in the States is, and I, I'm facing this challenge right now, is you open yourself up to the criticism of there wasn't enough football or I wanted more of the psychology child development theory, right? right. And so the tension is always how to um, apportion the, the content buckets, if you will. I think probably at times, I, I mean, when I first took my badges, because I was quite experienced player and quite experienced at the exercise, I like the psychology, I like the motivation, I like those things. And also, um, as an English university student with a degree in philosophy and literature, God help me. Um, <laughs> but, but, but now I look at the courses and when I'm teaching them, I'm like, I really wish I could get the sugar packets out a bit more and move around and, and talk about how Man City could break down Southampton or how the US men's national team could break down Costa Rica or how the you know, how women's national team could, could be more effective against European teams or whatever it is. So I think the, the long and the short of it is, is um, every candidate wants something different. And I think the challenge for all of us providing the courses is to be true to our curriculums, but also be reflexive enough to the needs of a particular cohort. And that might be a particular individual student, or it might just be a cohort. So for example, you know, grassroots courses, a grassroots course in inner city Chicago in a, in a Latino neighborhood, that course looks a lot different than a course in rural Arkansas, even though the content is mm. similar, you have yeah. to really be contextual for the audience. Yeah. And I mean, all across the US, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing because obviously both of us are from England. Um, it's all pretty standard there in terms of everyone has a similar philosophy across all of the county of FAs. But here, every state really is culturally different. And, how they yeah. see the game, how they play the game. and Absolutely. Well, I think the, the a way of sort of describing that a little bit, um, uh, Greg Berhalter presented the convention last week. So that's great. A men's national team coach. And I suggested in, uh, in an interview, that's probably the hardest job in world football in some regards, because if you live in a European country or a South American country, there's a, there's a standard style of play it's been Im embedded, you know where the players come from. Even in Brazil, where most of the players play outside of the country, at least there's a Brazilian blueprint for playing and you probably have yeah. sort of your Brazilian team and then you have the, the guys you bring back. But in the case of Greg Berhalter, you've got players in MLS, you've got players in Europe, you've got players um, like Klinsman used to use, the European born and bred players that had really never been to America. So Jermaine Jones, Fabian Johnson, those kind of guys. Um, then you've got people, um, most famously Paul Gardner at Soccer America, but other people that say we should be a Latin style of play. And then you've got other people that want us to be Northern European style of play. And then you've got, you know, Hawaii, which is six time zones different than New York, and you've got climate differences. So America, um, America sh is its great strength is the diaspora kind of feel about American soccer, but it's also a limitation too because um, it's, hard to, it's hard to identify what US 
soccer is, um, what its what its strongest cultural themes are. Um, I think the women, the women probably do it a little bit better right now. I think you can kind of see the identity of our women's national team. And I think the men's national team under Arena in 2002 was was uniquely American. It was kind of in your face, high tempo. Um, but I don't think we have that. I don't think you could you could put your you could you couldn't put a pin in the map and say this is how soccer in America works. You'd have to put the pin in the map and say this is this is kind of Washington State youth soccer, and this is you know maybe I don't know uh, New Mexico youth soccer because they're probably going to look quite different. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean men's and women's soccer now in the U.S. A lot of those players are um, being developed or moving to Europe, so you could argue that that might actually bring them more success later on because a lot of the big teams who've been successful at world cup stage have always been uh, players who have played in different countries all the way around the world and as all the heartache we've always had to endure with england <laughs> all of our players have always stayed in the same country and you could argue that, that was that was a a reason why we struggled but well our latin influences in the mls are quite strong right because obviously we're using a lot of homegrown talent that's brought up through great academies like Dallas and Houston and, and the LA ones. And then you're bringing up players from South and Central America, um, seasoned pros, and they can come and make a good living in the MLS. And yet all of our top players, let, most of our top players at least, are playing in Europe, right? They're playing in Italy, yeah. um, Germany, England. So consequently, it's going to be the case, I think, right now that our team has that little bit more of a European feel to it just because of the experience of the top players when they come back. So to suddenly say turn around and play a little bit more like Mexico or Costa Rica, yeah. I think is a little bit of a challenge on the men's side. And indeed, I can make the case that America is quite advantaged when it plays in CONCACAF because it is a different style, right? So it's not one that a lot of the other countries in CONCACAF are familiar with. Yes. So it's a it's a big challenge on the women's side you see alex morgan just came back from spurs i know there's been um i think she previously played in in france i believe uh, several of them are in man city or have been at man city that can only help our women's national team greatly i think the nwsl is a fantastic product and of course there's a lot of european players and and, and world stars playing in nwsl um but you can certainly see the identity of our women's national team more clearly right now than you can of our men's. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this kind of leads me on to my next uh, couple of questions. As as a lead educator, and you've been all the way around the US, um, what have you seen to be a big difference between being in the central, central US, being East Coast, yeah. West Coast? Well, one of the things I think that um, is, is pretty, pretty important to consider is climate right so right off the bat you've got climate issues i tend to find the east coast and um, midwestern players when i look at olympic development which i work a lot in um, they're quite hardy maybe not the most technically gifted um, but a very hard-nosed type of player very very i mean this is sort of a great general generality yeah um obviously players from the south and the west um certainly the warmer states technical superiority speed of play is quicker, um, creativity, improvisation is greater. And it's quite interesting 
if you actually watch USYS Olympic development and you watch the teams come together, and it's true for the, the girls as well as the boys, um, they're actually colored, right? So the uh, West likes to play in black uniforms. Now, when I say the West, you've got Oregon and Washington all the yeah. way down to Arizona. Um, the East is blue, Midwest is red, and the the um, South is green. And the South is Texas across to Florida. It's bizarre how they split it up. However, if you put them all in neutral uniforms, I, I could probably pick out for you where the teams come from. So this is yeah. a quarter, uh, you know, this is putting the country in quarters. Um, so climate's a big thing. And, and we talk about something in the coaching badges, it's called the said principle, but the specific adaptation to impose demands. And the idea is that essentially you intentionally or unintentionally adapt to the, the most common challenges in your environment. Mm -hmm. So if those environments are climate, if those environments are extreme temperature, facility usage, the surface, the quality of coaching, the cultural influences of the coaching, you will tend to adapt to those strengths and weaknesses. And that's your finished product. And that is, um, that is something that is very profound uh, in the US for me. So what do you see to be a big difference between uh, British and American kids in terms of soccer? I think the, the gap is closing greatly. So I do get to go back to the UK, not in the last nine months, but a lot. And a lot of the things that we, when we as youth coaches whine about American kids, right? Not being, the, the negatives we have about um, American kids sometimes, uh, the petty whines that coaches have, British coaches have those now about their kids, right? Mm. Too many um, social media or technologies or not playing enough um, intuitively. So I think the, the biggest challenge for all of us, not, not American and, and UK different, and, and I'm sure in other countries, is children don't play organically anywhere near as much a soccer, at least, as they used to in the UK, and they need to in this country, in my opinion. Um, recess at school, uh, do they even get recess? Do they actually have PE classes? What are they doing during recess? Because there have been times, um, certainly in the UK, you would just go out and play soccer the entire recess, or yeah. what we would call playtime, I think. Um, <laughs> you, can see, you can see those sports, though, in America, where pickup is more natural. It seems like basketball is a sport where if you've, if you've got a couple of hoops and there's a ball, the kids will pick it up and play basketball. If you put a soccer ball on a small court with a couple of pug goals, or um, I think they're called infinity goals at quick goal, it's not necessarily the case that kids will pick up and play. My challenge to any of your listeners that are parents, when they're looking about whether they sign up you know, for extra academy training at Harbor or um, they travel across state to do something else, um, do your children go out and play in the backyard or as whatever the backyard looks like um, as much as they go to two training sessions for 75 minutes a week and then the game on a Saturday and they want a couple of hundred dollar pair of Nike cleats and a ball bag and all the gear. Because as I think as we would all appreciate its frequency, its repetition, and it's actually the organic learning, which is the key. And then we as coaches hopefully can top it up and add to that. Um, so I don't think it's I don't think it's as much um, European as American anymore. I think all the children have these challenges and we as adults have these challenges to keep our kids active. The one thing that is, of course, a lot different 
even though we have NBC sports and we have amazing soccer coverage now compared to when I came here in Absolutely. the late 80s, um, it's not the first thing you find, right? So in, in, in a soccer nation where you don't have basketball, American football, baseball, maybe ice hockey and other things coming up on the feed, the news feed, the sports feed, the conversations amongst adults, especially, of course, men in, in, a, in a European country, kids don't have that immersion. So that is a limitation. That's something that American kids, they just don't have it swimming around them in the same way that a, that a European kid would. Um, that said, that said, when I first came here and I did soccer camps like we all had to, the kids would be wearing Michael Jordan t-shirts, North Carolina basketball t-shirts. Maybe they'd have, um, you know, a San Francisco 49ers shirt on. Now you go to do soccer camps and they've all got Messi and Ronaldo shirts on or, um, Alex Morgan shirts on. And if you ask them, what do you think about, I don't know, what do you think about Ronaldo? What do you think about Marta sometimes? Um, they know, they actually know what you're talking about. So it's getting better for us, but, but soccer in this country will always be a fourth or fifth tier sport, certainly in my lifetime, um, despite other people's aspirations to make it the number one sport in this country. And I think we accept that and we understand that. But the number one thing we could all do is try to get kids playing more frequently without our direct supervision. That would be, that would be my number one fix to make America win the World Cup. Yeah, and I'd actually listened to, uh, when I was at the, listening to your convention last week, um, so I forgot the lady's name, but she was talking about um, how to get into schools more, trying to mm -hmm. support people with getting, and associations with getting into schools. And so it was interesting when you just mentioned recess and mm -hmm. how as kids, that was all we did. I mean, mm -hmm. in, in British schools, at least in my school, it was, you know, you got 15 minutes break. And this was when I was in primary or American elementary and then high school, get your first 15 or 20 minutes break. You're out, you're putting your uh, bags down as goalposts. You're, everyone's wearing the same color, but somehow you figure out you defer two different teams. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, lunch break, you get an hour. And just before lunch break, you're making the teams before you go out. Yeah. Um, and then after school, you, you go in, you get off the bus, you go out and play again, even if it's dark. I mean, for us, sometimes it'd be dark by 4.30. We get off the bus at four o'clock. Suddenly we've got a half an hour window, but we would take our, make sure we took our cleats and things like that. You, to, you, uh, you're making me nostalgic, um, <laughs> but I, I, I just want to hear myself tell the story. So grammar school, um, as an 11-year-old, we only were allowed to play hockey or uh, field hockey or rugby. That was, it was a grammar school. And we would blaze it up in long trousers and shirts and ties. Yeah. And we would take a tennis ball out at every recess. The old bike sheds had wooden pillars, so they would be the goals. And we'd play with a tennis ball in dress shoes and dress pants. And occasionally you'd lose the knee in your trousers. Yeah. And it was great, <laughs> it was just brilliant. And then even in sixth form, so that would be 11th and 12th grade in the US, um, I would always take a football to school and we, 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 we were allowed to sort of wear jeans and shirts and stuff. We couldn't wear yeah. football gear. So we'd play for 15 minutes. We'd get covered in mud and go back in and do, you know, um, AP calculus or whatever the heck it was. So that was, that was, that was the, the beauty of it for sure. Um, but I think you make a good point about schools and, and our colleague Ian McCallum at, um, 
at uh, Bainbridge Island in, in off of Seattle. He was one of one of the coaches that did this in Minnesota. He, as a partly as a recruiting tool for the for the program to get more kids in, right, to keep the business of the club going. He went into middle schools and offered to do um, PE classes, um, support recesses, and then of course because the club was a nonprofit, at the end of the week they could put the flyer in for the club into the kids take yeah. home from school. Um, so whether it's, whether it's to recruit players in or whether it's actually to be part of a community service, I think youth clubs interfacing with elementary and middle schools is, is brilliant. A lot of those kids, um, the school days can be, you know, I'm sure you're going to see this soon with your family, sort of 7am to 2.30, which is really tough on parents, right? So yeah. could the youth club put in a 2.30 to 4.30 program which could be an extension of the school program. And you're not going to get super, you're not, all of the kids aren't going to be super serious soccer players. They're not going to want to play outside of this program, but you're doing some additional programming. You're promoting the game. You're maybe branding your club a little bit. You're part of the community service. And we all understand you've got to get to the kids increasingly younger for the development purposes. And the schools do provide that wonderful sort of shooting fish in a barrel opportunity. And my experience, at least in most recent in Minneapolis, was the PE teachers were delighted because the PE teachers in elementary and middle schools may not have a special, well, they certainly, very few of them have a specialty in soccer. They probably have a little bit more of a special speciality in a broad-based child movement, uh, physical literacy curriculum. Yeah. So when a soccer person comes in and says, I'll give you a few modules of soccer, and a guy like myself, I don't get a ton of free time during the day, but that's sort of a, something I can even give back to my community because it's a couple of hours, let's say from noon till two, uh, I can probably get out of my office to do that. And in my case, I can afford to do that at no charge to the school for sure. Yeah, as at the club I'm at, we actually introduced a community outreach program to try and not just, yes, it was, you're right, it's a recruiting tool, but we just felt that we knew there was like a lot of recreational players that were going to be part of uh, these clubs. So, uh, sorry, these schools. So if we just got in there, gave them the tools nice and early, eventually when they come to us, they just knew they had a lot of the tools mm -hmm. and basics and it worked out really well for us. I mean, again, going to one of the local schools, it was just a small private school and we ended up with eight kids wanting to come and play for us. And some of those are playing mm -hmm. on our top teams and they were really beginners at that point. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. I would I would say to somebody listening to the podcast that's interested, go slowly, right? But look at it and say, okay, if I've got a bag of balls, we've all got a bag of balls, and we've got a couple of pop-up goals, and the school will let you there, and it's all supervised, and you do your background check. So you show up to a couple of these lunch break recesses, and they've got other things, and I'm thinking more like elementary, middle school, so they've got swing sets, and they've got, and you just pop the goals down and put the balls there and don't really do anything. Yeah. chat with the kids right and and let them help themselves to a ball um maybe that you answer a few questions about what the goal is and the balls are maybe they break themselves into teams um and it's not going to be magic the first time but my experience is if you kind of go on a consistent basis and they that oh there's the soccer person right with his two goals and his bag of balls maybe we'll just pick up and play you make a you make a good point earlier though about the way your experiences of, of, of unstructured soccer, if you will. One of the great things about sort of unstructured soccer is you're right, the children pick their own teams. We're terrified when it's a managed environment of letting the kids pick their own teams. But when you're a kid, you can do it. You don't need an adult to do it. And the other interesting thing for me about the kid thing 
is if you're playing with your friends and the score gets out of control, you realign the teams, right? Yeah. And so, because we want to be competitive. Of course, in the youth sport environment, we try to pick teams as stacked as possible to obliterate the opponent <laughs> by massive margins. So there's something incredibly counterintuitive about some of the models we put into youth sports relative to what a youth sport uh, experience is when it's just organized by youth. So I think we need to be mindful of that occasionally. Yeah, it's actually, uh, it's quite amazing to think about how innovative kids can be at those younger ages. Because even with like specific rules, I don't know if, if you had this when you were going to school, but we used to play with a rule called rush goalie because no one ever mm -hmm. wanted to be goalies, yeah. right? Yeah. So then it was first person back, they get to use their hands. Yeah. And there was, a, I actually just started doing that. I coach a boys 2011 team. And I just did that because we can only play 3v3 or 4v4 in, in uh, practices right now in intra-team because of COVID. And uh, so I, I just introduced that in my practice. And it was amazing how different some of these kids yeah. were willing to get back and defend, get forward of each other. It was just, it was a, it's been a blast. But well, we look at, you know, we don't um, boundaries. So if you're playing, if you're playing with your friends in the park, the field is as wide as the, until you get to the road, right? Or you <laughs> yeah. run into the trees, That's true. Um, which, which is interesting because the people that want the ball the most work the hardest because you've got to go fetch it. Um, or you're clever, you sit there and wait, let the other bloke fetch it. And when he comes back tired, you steal it off him. But um, there is, there is, and it, I, I appreciate it's nostalgia, but I think it is a replicable, replica, replicable model. I think it's something we can do with more intentionality. Even at a club like Harbour and, and um, Bainbridge Island and some of these clubs, the parents want you to, they've, 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 they've set it up for the club to run the programming and they probably expect to see a lot of bells and whistles sometimes out of the club. But could there be the occasional days, um, once a week or whatever it was, or a Saturday, where the club goes out and it's supervised, there's parents there and coaches there to keep the kids safe, but you keep your mouth shut and you just give them the equipment. And if some of them want to go off and literally go and play on the slide and the swings, that's what kids want to do. I, I was recently at Overland Park, which I think is the biggest turf field complex in America. It's here in Kansas City. And um, I was with my wife, who's not a, she, she follows the game and understands it now, but she's not a fan. Watching some under eights play, full Adidas on Nike gear, debt chairs, Starbucks coffees, mums and dads, grandparents, iPhones, referees, and I think the kids would have been about eight, maybe seven or eight. Yeah. Honestly, I thought it was a really sterile and, and poor environment. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a bad environment. It was what, you, what we all see. And I just wasn't particularly inspired. It looked overblown. And then they blew the whistle and the game was done and the tents come down, everything comes down. And a lot of the kids just hightailed it across the field to the wood chips and the swing set. And were like climbing up and down the... The, the ropes or the, the poles or whatever it was. And it was, it was amazing. And I'm like, that's what these kids love doing, want to do. And they're prepared to do it fr free of any involvement. And then we've got this super structured thing up on the hill. Yeah. I'm not trying to put us all out of business as youth coaches. <laughs> and I think there are some amazing, clearly some amazing opportunities there, right? Your parents are watching. 
if the affirmations are good, you're playing with friends, you're learning rules, you're learning respect for referees. I think the youth sport environment can be really, really positive. But we have to remember at the end of the day, in the case of this example, they're seven years old and running around in dirt and mud and making games up is kind of what many of them can and like to do. And I think we need to find a way of continually harnessing that in the formal environments that we provide. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, again, that was, that was, well, actually, another thing I do want to mention uh, while we're on schools, so I wanted yep. to move on to the next question, but I've got another sure. thing. That, um, another difference that I have noticed, and I mean, I, this is basically, it was one of my best experiences of playing um, back in England was uh, having a school team at primary school, you know, and which is American elementary school level, having those school teams, it wasn't gender specific. I mean, we didn't really have girls teams when I was a kid anyway, but the girls were still able to play because physically at 9 10 11 they were able still to 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 compete with boys and uh so that was something that helped me enjoy the game a lot more was because oh we can be on a school team this year you know when you're 9 10 11 that was it was something to look forward to do you think that's Mm -hmm. something that american kids miss out on well we certainly have middle school teams and things like that in some places. We certainly did in, in Minnesota most yeah. recently. Um, I think representative soccer, though, is fantastic. And rep, so representative soccer doesn't have to be all the best players put on Absolutely. the Harbour Green travel team. Um, I, I think and we've seen it at the older age groups, right, where certain clubs and certain associations said you don't play high school soccer. So all the better players didn't play high school soccer. In many cases, high school soccer is is not the same environment as the club environment for good and bad. But the good is in high school soccer, for example, you're tied to academics, so you can't participate for the high school team. That's not the case in typical club environment. You're probably going to get more people come watch you than you would in your club environment because people get behind the school and the community. If you're a top, top player for an elite club and your high school team is not very good, it's a 10-week commitment. You're probably going to be the captain. And now, can you be the superstar that drags everybody along with you? Can you learn different tricks being with this group of players as opposed to that group of players? So I'm a huge fan of representative football. Um, yeah. And when you're looking at, you know, I don't know how it works in Harbour, but if you've got, a, you know, you've got 100 kids, let's say, in the under 10, under 11, or under 9, under 10, and they come in and they play on the teams you've divided them into, maybe one day you say, okay, zip code or elementary school and they for that particular training at harbor instead of playing for green blue and black they play for their respective elementaries it just changes your energy right you've just got you've got a different sense of pride a different sense of connection um and of course um it's much more difficult to do in a country of this geographical scale um and with some of the limitations of frequency of of playing and training times but it is the case that in a lot of countries, you played for your school, you played for your local community club, you got to a certain point, maybe you played representative county or higher level, like ODP. Um, and then very often, as a, as a young man, at least, when you got to 14, 15, you also played for the men's pub team on a Saturday. And when all the guys went to the bar after the game, you sort of sat in the parking lot with a Pepsi or a Coke. So you were always 
you weren't this ownership of players that club coaches and clubs have and and indeed high school coaches have it as well they, you know we don't want you to play for the club and it's interesting because high school was the first one to put prohibitions on player movement mm-hmm. and now clubs do it and the high schools complain about it but back in the day when high school was completely in the ascendancy um so if i was a mum and a dad and i had a kid that i thought liked it uh, they play for Harbour. Maybe they do a summer soccer camp. Maybe they try out for the state select program when they're little. If there is a school program, they negotiate with the club that they can participate in the school program. But I, I think that mixed um, experience for the player is is a really valuable thing whenever you can achieve it. Yeah, absolutely. And playing, like, again, we're talking about schools, but playing with your school is a different sense of pride. And, and I mean, I'd coached a high school here in Washington, it was a really small high school. We did quite well. Um, they've only ever won the, their division once. And actually my wife at the time was captain. She could argue that she's the, one of the most successful players they've had. Um, but so you as an example, she used to have to drive for, she lived on the hood canal and then she would have to drive and get, catch the ferry over to North Seattle and play for a club at the time was Northwest Nationals. So she can get good competitive soccer. Mm-hmm. But she was one of only a small handful of select premier players on her team, where a lot of them were, were recreational players. And uh, But it, it, it some, somehow, because they were playing for their community, it helped even the playing field when they played against some of those bigger schools that had players that were traveling all over the place. Mm-hmm. Even if, um, so I'm going to guess that, that as players progress through Harbour and they get into their teenagers years, um, the, the objective would be to maybe marry the soccer with college, be it division three, NAA junior college, or maybe lucky a couple of them get lucky and get a little bit of an opportunity at a Washington or a big school like a Seattle university or something. Um, very few are going to be pros, obviously many will drop out, but college soccer could be a reasonable aspiration for many kids in a good club like yours. When they get to college, what does it look like? You all of a sudden you've got, you know, 18 completely new teammates. Yeah. You're, you're going integrating into the dorms. You're probably as a a college kid for the first time doing your own laundry, finding your own meals, getting yourself to class. So I do think we can use youth sports as a primer for what most of our kids are going to end up in college, right? And and if you put them in these super cliques, super protective, super ownership by the coach, um, you're actually doing them a disservice. You, you're not preparing them for what is probably their next good athletic opportunity and indeed their next lifestyle opportunity. So I'm I'm not really big on the whole super team, recruit, recruit everybody, cuts and tryouts and dispose of people, so you can have this, you know, this, the Ian Barker United team or the Mitchell James United team. I just think, I mean, there's a place for it and there are egos and people that want that, but I'm, I think I'm a little bit too old now for that kind of, uh, that ego. So. <laughs> so, so what's your, uh, what's your opinion on why players pull out and stop playing? You know, I, I've seen a lot of players stop between probably the ages of, 15 and 18. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think is causing them to do that? Well, people of my age, um, 
I apologize, but I think the answer is the same as it was 25 years ago, maybe a bit longer when the research came out and the most, the, the powerful research came out of Michigan State and they surveyed kids in that 13 down age group. And the number one reason was fun. It stopped being fun. Yeah. So winning was in their top 10 list, but it was sort of eight or nine friends, fun. Um, those were high principles for those 13 on downs. So if I, if you think about this, the, um, the somewhat sterility of the, the, the Kansas scenario I painted where they were playing under eights and then they ran off to the wood chips and ran around in the dirt. I think we've got to be mindful of that. So that's the younger ones. And it's quite simple. It's, it's scientifically researched. You can find it, Michigan State, circa the 70s. Great stuff, really good stuff. And it's, it's underpinning a lot of our youth development coaching badges in this country and abroad. At the older ages, the challenge becomes um, perceptions of competence. So if I don't feel like I'm getting any better at it and I'm really good at violin, I think there comes a point where specialization is necessary. So it could be we lose kids at that 15 to 18 age group, the group that you had asked about for very reasonable, for good reasons. We're just, we've got to a point where we have to start prioritizing our time a bit more and being JV soccer as a junior, when I could go over here and you know do drama or go to AP classes, is probably going to be more used to me. So I think that's very reasonable. Um, what I think is unreasonable and what does hurt it is it gets quite expensive in terms of an investment of time and money as the player pool shrinks in terms of volume. And as this country is very big, it's a big time commitment and potentially a big financial commitment. I would put it to you, Washington, Seattle area is very different because you've got all that water in the way. But in a metro area like Kansas City, you should be an under 18 and be able to get a decent game of football within your zip code. Even at a modest level of club football, you should be able to do that. There's a, um, a community in Minnesota called White Bear Lake. It's just outside of the cities. And there was a guy there called Tom Coulard, and he came up with this idea, which I thought was brilliant. The high schools were about 4,000 kids sometimes, massive. Yeah. So you've played for elite club soccer. You go to the high school, you can't even make the varsity team. So now you're discarded and you've got nothing to do. So what Tom did was he created a seven-a-side league because that was a better number for boys and girls 18 down to sort of 15, 14, that high school group. And during the high school season, he ran a very entertaining recreational league, seven-a-side. So he just took all of those kids that weren't able to play competitive high school and they weren't, there was no competitive club at that time because the league was shut down because of high school. Yeah. And he created a seven-a-side league. That, to me, is enlightened programming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the club can make some money. The club can brand it. It's not travel. You're not going to Las Vegas to play in the under-nine super tournament, right? And the coaches aren't A-licensed or anything. But why not have that? That yeah. could be really fun. So I think there's, I think there's ways to do it. Um, and we all agree that one of the geniuses for the development of the game will be when more parents of young children have played the game to a good level, maybe collegiately, maybe um, up to collegiate level. But then when their own children are coming out, they're able to go in the backyard and play with them and, and watch the game with them and give them skills too. Because I don't want to put coaches like yourself or myself or our colleague Ian out of business 
but it would be nice at some point if the economy of youth soccer shifted a little bit and people were getting greater value for the specialized treatment they were getting as opposed to um, the sort of the very generic programming that often is the case. So if I was a parent and I came to you and said, uh, you know, my kid's 10 mm -hmm. and does, do I need to have my team playing on uh, my, my child playing on the best team possible at that age? So let's say a top three team in the state. Mm -hmm. and that was their target as a parent. Um, there are things you can do with your child, right? So if your child plays on the best team, but doesn't get very much playing time, would they be better off playing on the second team and getting a lot of playing time? I think that's, you can argue developmentally back and forth for sure, but maybe the simple determination is what does the kid enjoy more and what are you as a parent more satisfied? So do you want to sit there and watch the first team play and be dis and angry all the time your son or daughter is only playing limited time? Or do you want to go over to the second team field and feel like you failed somehow, but get to watch your child play the 80 minutes or whatever it is? So that, that could be a determination. Um, we do need to do a better job of playing kids up. So I like the idea of club passes. So mm. that very profoundly talented 10-year-old, um, every now and again, you pull them out of the 10-year-old team. Your 10-year-old coach is pissed off, but that's okay because he or she still got plenty of players and you put the kid on the 11-year-old team. You have to be careful when you do that because um, it might make sense physically and technically, but there might be some social issues, right? So yeah. the 11 year olds might resent the 10 year old, the 10 year old might not fit in socially, um, especially when you get to those teenage years too. Um, so there's different things there. I, I would just say, and we, we've all seen it, I'm sure you're seeing it and as a relatively young coach, this incredible burnout where the players, um, have either reached so high or the pressure to reach so high is you look around and all of a sudden there's nowhere else to go. And now you're in this horrible treadmill where you've got to keep up. And that's, that's okay. If you play for man United or you play for the Seattle Sounders or you play for the Seattle rain, that's your job. You're a professional athlete. That is not what we should be putting on children. We used to have a U.S. men's national team for U14. Imagine if your son makes that team. And the next year doesn't yeah was was the was the basically the highest point of his career as a 13 year old and now everything is like that's the kid that used to be on the national team but now he's with the first team at harbor yeah. and now he's you know a, a, a squad player with the odp team I, I just think this is something that parents could understand i i believe and it's a sort of a philosophy it's a greek philosophy actually and it's this notion of dynamic change and the concept is that if you go step in a river today and you step in it tomorrow, it's the same river. It's the Mississippi or whatever the river is, the River Avon in your case. Um, uh, but, um, but it's different water, right? Yeah. So instead of being in this sort of this rush to get to the highest level right away, it's a process. And so, and there's, I mean, this is really basic sort of psychology and motivation get our parents, get the club to support the notion of process as opposed to product outcome. And then also, and this is critical and, and this is one we would, it's a bit tangential is form, right? Yeah. I think most adults can understand we have our good and our bad days physically, emotionally, professionally, 
personally. And yet we tend to say that if I've got, if you've got a group of kids at Harbour and they're sort of ranked today internally, one through 18 in that squad, the expectation is that that best player is always the best player every day. And if they don't perform, there's something wrong with them. Right. And it's not, right? It's just that they're in a cycle and they're having a physically downtime or a mentally downtime. So we, we tend to put so much pressure on these young people because we've assigned them to the Harbour A team or the Harbour B team, or you're the best player on the Harbour A team. We put all that pressure on those kids without ever sort of contextualizing it and saying, it's okay to have a bad game. It's all good. Yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's a no win because as a parent, which I am not, you must be so proud of your little DNA package running around there as a, as a, as much as you love them, they're also a representation of you, right? So they're tying into your ego and you want the best for them. Mm -hmm. All I would say to parents is my vast experience in this space. What is best for them is very often a hug, a smile, a pat on the backside, an affirmation, it is not putting them on a plane to go to a tournament in Las Vegas. Yeah. So what do you feel, let's say we've got a kid this, uh, or that parent that I use as an example. Um, again, I'm, a, I'm the parent, I've got a kid, Beth, she's, she or he is the best player on the team. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a problem? If a player between nine to 14 is the best player on a team? Well, there's, there's probably gonna be a best player. Mm -hmm. Right. So even if you took your kid off, the problem sits there for the next parent. Right. Um, I do think, though, that most examples of elite player development, certainly historical, come out of where players have had various challenges of adversity. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you look at you look at the favelas of um, Brazil and you look at the, the terrible environments in some parts of Buenos Aires, that's where some of the top talent in the world has come out of. So you don't want to be a boxer who has never been punched in the face. So if your child is simply running up and down the field, scoring all the goals, th there's some positives in that, right? It's very affirming for them. Um, they, they, they get different social aspects out of it for sure, but they're probably not developing physically or uh, tactically, technically, and they may be getting a big head too. So you may need to put them in an environment by again, playing them with older players right. um, or um, taking them, you know, getting on a tournament team and going with, um, with, a, with a different group. I, I quite like it when your club is shut down, if your club, and let's say, I, I don't know all the clubs, but Bainbridge Island, if, if your clubs are basically shut down, you put together like a little sort of Seattle mm -hmm. United all-star group, which isn't all-stars. It's just the kids that want a bit of extra programming and you find a uniform and off you go and you just have that. Um, so this, so trying to break them out of these strict identifications with a particular team, I think is, is helpful. And so I did have an experience a couple of years ago. I had a boy at U10 uh, when I first came to Harbour. He's really good technically, really smart. Um, wasn't very confident. Mm -hmm. And uh, a couple of his friends left because again, the grass was greener, so, so they seen. And, um, you know, he, he was left over and I, the parent was on board and they, they, they believed in what we were doing and they couldn't go travel as far 
financially and from where their location was, it was hard, it was really hard for them. And they were understanding they didn't want to do it at a younger mm-hmm. age. Um, then that next year, the, the confidence in this boy started to increase, but he also started to get more emotional because mm-hmm. the games um, were a lot harder mm-hmm. because we, you know, you just lost two of the better players. And uh, one of my ex- my experience with his parent, because I went up after and said, you know, how, you know, why was why was this boy crying? And he said, well, I, he, he feels he's not being challenged. I said, look, the reason he's crying is because he is being challenged. His his buddies have just left. He can't hide, and now he has to be the one that 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 does more. Has to be more creative. And uh, I mean, the the kid's confidence went through the roof, and. Now he's U14 and he's, he's, he's been training with the Sounders since U12 for the last Fantastic. two years. And yep. hopefully he gets, he gets in with them next year. But it's a good example that I've used uh, with some parents who are younger or who their kids are younger and they, they're like, oh, I'm a kid on the best team. Like, Look, this is this situation. He's got a good chance. I think this was the right way to go. And my experience of being in England, you know, a lot of the academy teams at U15, U16 are very different than what they were at U8, U9, U10, yeah. because I believe some of those kids were able to stay in their communities. No and, one uh, no one has that um, ability to really predict the development of talent, right? Because if they did, they'd be a very wealthy person. Um, the example you use of the kid is, is fantastic. I would, uh, I would ask, you know, when the kid was crying because he didn't feel challenged, was that his estimation? Or was he getting a little bit of support in that idea from his mum and dad? And, you know, and I'm not suggesting his mum and dad were doing something terribly evil. Um, because we as coaches see them for maybe maybe six hours a week, if we're lucky. And of course, they're in school, they're with mums and dads. So there's a ton of influence that comes with the kid to your training environments, to your club environment, that frankly, you don't have a lot of control over. And you have to be sensitive to, right? So different different parenting styles, different, different children too. Um, one of the things that, that's very commonly discussed now in the coaching education programs, um, and we've been talking about a lot here, is this child development intrinsic motivation, right? Yeah. Basically, you have to feel, you have to express care about the athlete. You have to make them feel that they make a contribution. And um, you have to make them feel empowered, give them choice. So it's the three C's, right? Contribution, care, and choice. Now, in the example you use, I'm sure that you and the parents will be able to sh- were able to show care to this kid. Mm-hmm. His, his contribution should have been quite clear to him um, that he was the best player on the team. You needed to sell the idea that he was improving too, because That's you right. don't want to. Yeah. And then the final part would be choice. Now, in this particular case, because of financial, because of other issues, he didn't have the choice of going with his friends to the other team. So he's probably feeling that really badly. But there are other places you can put choice into the thing, right? He could be the captain of the team, maybe. Um, and th- there are all kinds of really interesting ways you can manipulate choice. In the session that I did at the convention, the last game that I, on the video, it was 8v8. And I just said, all right, you two teams break into two halves and come up with your tactics for the game and then give them back to me. So they got to pick the tactics. That's choice, right? So I think, um, I think whatever the situation is, all of the different scenarios that you and I can paint from our experiences, this notion of care, competence, and choice or care, contribution, and choice 
which fosters intrinsic motivation. It's all scientific and research-based and it's self-determination theory. Um, intentionally applied with your players can make a massive difference and it can work in your personal life with your loved ones, your partners, your coworkers. Because, so with this, this little boy who's lost his two teammates, you know, so Gavin, um, how was school today? Gavin, what's, uh, you know, I know your younger sister's in gymnastics. Have you been to see a play? So you, as, as soon as I use Gavin's, hypothetically Gavin's first name, he's already like, I'm paying attention. We know you're a good player. What can we improve on today? That's sort of simple stuff. And then again, this notion of choice. So I think it's there. And I think it's, you can, you can say, well, I don't get all the best players or we don't have the best facilities or we're only this team or we've got all of this or we lose all of our best players to Bainbridge Island. It's not about the kids that went to Bainbridge, hypothetically. I know that Ian wouldn't steal your players. It's about the ones you've got, right? Yeah. It, it, and I use this example in Coach Ed, and I'll shut up for a bit. I go to Coach Ed clinics. They invite me out to Harbour. You say it's going to be great. I get there. There's only six coaches. You promised me 20. So I can throw a wobbly and be pissed off that I got up in the morning to come over and there's six coaches there. But the 14 that didn't show up are now taking all of my energy. And what a disservice to the six that are there yeah. that want to learn. So I've become, and it's really just old age, let's say experience, that's nicer, um, much more concerned about what's in front of me than what, for whatever reason, is not available to me or doesn't want to be with me. And that's our challenge as coaches, right? Our challenge is to coach what you've got given. The notion of sitting there at a youth level and saying, this isn't good enough. I've got to go and steal more. I've got to go and steal more. I'd love to see you all get rid of tryouts. I really would. I'd love you to have an open harbor soccer day where parents can come in. They can listen to about the club. All of the kids can go out and play some semi-structured soccer. And if they want to come and play for Harbour, you'll try to do the best you can to build for teams for them. Yeah. As opposed to following them around with clipboards and they're rushing from your trout to this trout to this trout and waiting for this magic phone call yeah. from a coach who probably isn't qualified to determine this kid's future and status within the family and within the community. I'm just really tired of that. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Um. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, so a question, another question for you regarding is moving into more the education questions. Yeah. Um, as a, because your role, if a, if a director came to you and said, what should be, well, I, I want to improve my curriculum mm -hmm. all the way across the board. Yep. What would you recommend? You can just go online and pull a curriculum off pull Ajax's curriculum off because Ajax are really good at it, right? Or you mm -hmm. can pull off Chelsea's or I can write you one or you can write one and they're all plagiarized. They're all slightly different. But if we're talking curriculum, training games, um, types of training, you know, you, you and I were having a discussion off air. Some people will say you must never do rondos. Mm -hmm. I don't think you should use the word never or always in, in sport unless it's to do with player and child safety. Um, so I'm not really interested in curriculum as much. Um, I think you want to you wanna embrace the flavor of the coaching staff you've got. Yeah. So your club harbor has a series of mission statements, vision statements, general underpinning philosophies, right? And that could include that we like to play this formation. We think this, this formation is a developmental formation that works for our players. 
And we want there to be a connection between the under eight and under 10 program to the under 12 and under 14. That's explicit. That is direction. That is a, a broad skeleton. Then I think you place your coaches, male coaches, female coaches, coaches that work better with certain ages, and you let them, you let them um, express themselves. So certainly if you've got you know, coaches with international ba foreign backgrounds too. So I think for me, it's more a committed direction of the club than a series of training games and training activities. So when I think about when I think about curriculum, not sure I even really, not sure it really sure. fits uh, as much. Um, and uh, but the other thing I would say is that. So uh, you, you'll appreciate this as a fan of the global game, this playing out the back, right? There's really, there was, when, when playing out the back started in this most recent iteration in world modern football, there was only one team that could really do it, and that was Spain. And then Barcelona, obviously. And then in England, Man City, and nobody else could really do it. Arsenal tried to do it famously and just failed repeatedly. Um, but it was a commitment, and it takes time. Absolutely. So what I would say to a youth club, even though your children move through so quickly because they're in that key development age, is come up with something at Harbour that you guys believe in and then give it a, a, a assessment, give it an efficacy program, right? So we're going to put it in now. Mm -hmm. We're going to evaluate at halfway point when there's a break in the season or there's a tournament. We're going to see how it's going. Everybody's going to put in a report card, end of season, and then a few little tweaks, but don't abandon your ideas and your projects too quickly. That would be my big advice to a club because I see clubs very knee-jerk you know they, they buy a package from Everton or they buy this curriculum from somewhere and then the next year the new president comes in they buy another one I, I'm not really for that and I think if you look at elite programs around the world club and national teams they have an element of consistency in their underpinning philosophies. So do you believe that rather than have a curriculum across a whole club they should be more individualized in terms of the groups that they're training? So I definitely believe in independent player profiles, right? So to the best of your reasonable ability, you give each kid a little bit of personal feedback. Each group is distinct, right? So you've got one group which comes all from the same middle school. The other group is from disparate. So they have different, they have different makeups. For me, it is not that, that detail that needs to be managed as much. What, what absolutely for me needs to be managed is the consistency within the club that your under 10 team, when it goes to be the under 11 team, the under 11 coach has a rough idea of what these children will have experienced. And when he or she passes them on what they're going to experience up here. And it's not necessarily the coach, it's that commitment. So it could be, it could be, for example, a, a formation, a basic starting formation. It could be playing out the back, right? It could be, it could be things like, more more um, simple things like playing time, right? The philosophy is equal playing time here, um, divided playing time up here, whatever those guides, guiding principles. So as long as everybody understands what the guiding principles are, I think that's that for me is a, is a critical piece. And what I do like, and they do this at Ajax, which is arguably uh, and somewhat statistically proven to be the best elite player elite player academy in the world. Yeah. Um, so you're probably worth having a look at, 
they do a lot of things of, of these technical wheels. So they bring all of the group in. Um, so you train, you train by your individual teams. And then at certain times they bring all the kids in and the goalkeepers all break off with the goalkeeper coach. So the ownership of the coaches is, is still there. You still have your own 11 team, 12 team, but sometimes the 10s, 11s and 12s train together. So now you can take the kids that aren't playing as much, maybe the weaker players on the 10, 11, 12 team, put them together, not because they're the C group and the broken toys, but because they're not getting as much touch on the ball in the games. And then you take some of the, and then you can mix in older kids with younger kids. And then also all of the coaches within that two year span, 10, 11, 12, are familiar with each other and what's going on. And then I have this incredibly romantic vision where all of those 10 and U10, 11, 12 coaches, let's say six, seven, eight of them with a couple of assistants, you go to Applebee's after the training and you have a cocktail and you talk a little bit about the group. Yeah. Because uh, at the end of the day, if, it's, if, if the only reason they're part of Harbour is because they wear that shirt and they've got the badge, but they're a collection of teams, it's not a club, it's just a collection of teams. Right. So how do you continually make it that club? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for, for the, this is for my coaches and all the coaches, um, everywhere really. And a huge topic in youth soccer right now is should technique be taught isolated or with pressure? I'd love to know what your stance is on this. Um, there is a Twitter, I'm sure you've seen it. I think it's James. It's just, I think the guy's name is James. He, he built a kick wall for his son um wooden kick wall because of covid and everything and then he put the um he put the design of it online it's all free i'll send it to you after this and you can maybe send it to you for 40 he showed you for 40 dollars how you could build this really nice kick wall for your kid and then he sticks it in the side of the side perpendicular to the house and the kid kicks it off the garage door back against the thing and he's doing all these brilliant absolutely brilliant technical repetition he can create his own pressure of time and distance with a ball his dad's wooden thing from Home Depot and his garage door, right? Most kids can find a basement and certainly in your climate can go outside and kick a ball against the wall. Absolutely superb. And you can create tons of, as a kid, you can create tons of pressure for yourself that way. Ultimately, the game is played with somebody hanging on you and trying to kick you while you're trying to hang on to them and kick them. So I like, I love opposed training sessions whenever you can do it. 1v1s, big brother, little brother, knock the ball across, excellent. So um, the idea of technique and how technique becomes a skill for me is application. Mm -hmm. So when, how can you then take what you've done and apply it into the game? Some of us that are on the, the listening, you've, you've been to the halftime shows at some of the big games around the world and they bring out somebody who juggles for 20 minutes with the soccer ball and they can catch it on the freestyling, right? superb if you've got kids that want to be freestylers in soccer help them video them superb but really not a ton of application to the game so the game is passing and receiving heading which we might get to tackling dribbling those are your fundamental techniques and i think you can train them by yourself um and then if you've got opponents get opponents I will say this, dribbling is one I, I like to talk about a lot. Um, you stick down cones, right? And then you tell the kid to dribble, you got to keep your head up. Well, they don't have to because the cones are on the ground and that's what they're dribbling around. 
So if you think that dribbling should be with your head up, you're much better having the kid dribble through his or her mates or through um, obstacles than cones on the ground, which get their, their heads down, right? Yeah. So I think you have to think about what the technique is. Absolutely. But I, I don't think it has to always have opposition. I think you limit yourself if that's your strict interpretation of it. Yeah. So what's your, um, what's your stance on 1v1s in, in soccer and how... I, my personal opinion, I feel if we can uh, teach kids at, a, at younger ages how to be comfortable in 1v1 situations in all different scenarios, whether it's protecting the ball, dribbling at a player, defending, uh, it makes it a lot easier when they're older. Love it. So get a space that's about right. So 10 by 15, right? That's probably a good sort of space. It, obviously, age group appropriate, physical appropriate. So get yourself a rectangle. Um, decide if it's dribble over the end line, if it's pass it to a target player, if it's stop it in a um, stop it on the line or little goals. Are the little goals in the corners or are they like north south, like a regular field? Set that up. Get six kids, and each kid's got a ball. Pair them up. So the first two play three balls or six balls for a total of a minute. The ball is always in play. They're always battling and kicking and exchanging for whatever that period of time is, but less is probably better than more. And you've got a free supply of balls. So, you know, for that minute, they're not stopping or 45 seconds because you've got these six balls. Then the next two kids go in, then the next two kids in. Done. That's four minutes of total activity. Each kid's played one-on-one -on -one for, let's say, 45 seconds. Absolutely superb. Some kids are going to take the other kid on. Some are going to stand off and be passive. Some are going to turn their back and shield the ball, whatever. After that, you sort the six up again. You re you just completely mix them up. Off you go. That that could be 15 minutes of every youth training in America every day, and it would be just fine. Do you think more people need to adopt that that attitude towards their sessions? Because I know I've seen a lot, and I think one of the big problems that we have with I mean, there's awesome volunteers out there that help out with recreational programs. I think they see the game that's on TV and they want to just, they see all the good, great passing that happens and they want that to be implemented at U7, U8 early, where my yeah. philosophy is I just want them to manipulate the ball as much as possible. I'm not, I'm not, I don't even worry about them passing. But so I would love to know what your, your stance is there as well. There is, there is a contemporary, um, methodology being promoted play practice play the grassroots coach sets up five aside fields the kids play for 20 minutes then he or she does the training and then they play for 20 minutes if you've seen those done by typical grassroots coaches they're incredibly sterile they're dull the kids don't have good energy that's my opinion that's my experience so <clears throat> i like to typically take my little kids and immediately get the balls flying around, lots of touches, multiple touches, unopposed or opposed, and then very mindful of the amount of time. So this, this, if they've, if your guests have heard of periodization, periodization is just planning. Yeah. Um, but making sure that you're effective. So a well-organized grassroots coach with modest technical and tactical knowledge can run a great training session for 55 minutes well organized and well planned that would be more useful to the kid 
than somebody with a lot of expert knowledge out there for 75 minutes, 90 minutes, waffling on about all of his or her knowledge. Yeah. Um, and I'll give you a quick example, which hopefully some of your guests will appreciate. Mitchell sets up a 4v2, Ian sets up a 4v2, and we both play for four minutes. So at the end of the session, we both agree we've played four, four versus two for, for four minutes. If you're on a hardwood floor with one ball, the amount of activity will be negligible. If I'm on grass and I've got 20 soccer balls or 10 soccer balls and I'm continually feeding one in, the amount of work that player is doing, the amount of time on the ball, the amount of physical labor is infinitely superior or higher to what you're doing. So first of all, manage the activity and the time and the intensity of the work. And you don't need to have heart rate monitors. You don't need to have all of that. You just need to be, you just need to look and say, what am I, what am I able to achieve? All of us will remember a time when we ran the kids too long in an activity and the level just went to heck and we were like, this was underwhelming. We've also had activities which were too small. So the ball's never in bounds because we haven't given the players enough space to execute um, intelligent uh, offense or defense. So um, I, think, I think if you've got a little bit of knowledge, don't overuse it, but put your kids in logical environments. And one, there's nothing more logical than 1v1. So I'm, I'm with you. I, I think that's a perfectly um, after, after I've got them moving a little bit and they're ready to, to be com, com, combative and competitive. There's nothing. 1v1 is everything. Back in the day, and it's out of fashion now in some quarters in U.S. soccer coaching education, which is very disappointing. We looked at the player very simply as their physical ability, their um, technical ability, their tactical ability and their social emotional skills. 1v1 has technique, 1v1 has tactics, 1v1 is physically demanding, and 1v1 puts pressure on your socio-emotional skills. Yeah. 1v1. Absolutely. Nailed yeah. that one, Ian. Nailed it. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to finish off then um, with you know, my final... Actually, I, wanted, I do want to talk to you about the convention quickly. I know we've, we've run out of time. I've got you on here longer than anyone else Sorry. I've ever had, which Sorry. is uh, awesome, but... Uh, and I'm a huge fan of the convention. I've been to two two live conventions, and obviously this year was uh, was online. And I think it's brilliant what you guys do. And I, any coach, especially my, some of the coaches that uh, that I oversee, I'm always recommending them. They need to to go and do it because you, mm -hmm. yeah, learning and networking is amazing. And even some of the younger guys who are still playing get a ton out of it. Mm -hmm. from a from their using their coach's brain and then using it from their player's perspective and i think it's amazing so uh can you would you like to just go into a few reasons why you think this co yeah. the coaching convention helps yeah. so many well it's on air now so it's it's um there's a historical record if you bring any of the harbor coaches out next year um, we'll give you a tour of Kansas City. I'll tell you where the best barbecue is, not the stuff they tell you on the conventions. And I'll, I'll show you around a little bit. Um, I'll, take a, I'll take a half a day and, and entertain the harbor coaches. So that's a, that's a standing offer for you. Um, I'm holding So the convention, yeah, the convention, for those that aren't aware, is an annual thing, a week in January, um, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Kansas City, Chicago, 
Anaheim. Those are the five cities. It's one, one of those every year right now. Um, and about 11,000 people show up for a week of soccer, uh, primarily coaches. And so there's um, at a live convention about 200 educational sessions, field sessions and classroom sessions, um, top presenters internationally and domestically, uh, some university type content as well because of the, the skills we talked about. There's a huge exhibitor vendor show. So a lot of people come and do a lot of their business. And then there's a massive awards and rankings for high school kids and college kids, all Americas, academic and athletic, and then coaching honors and things like that. So it's really, it's the biggest gathering of soccer coaches in the world every year. It happens in America um, and it's really accessible for everybody. A grassroots coach could get as much out of it, probably more actually, than somebody that's coaching at the higher levels of the game. Um, this year, because of COVID, um, we had a big fight with Anaheim, but finally we decided not to go to Anaheim, which was good because it's not going so well in Southern California. So we did it all digitally. So there are 50 educational sessions online right now that we gave live last week and people can still access um, if they want to moving forward and you can buy them and all that kind of stuff. So that type of experience and the networking is, is as, as you said, Mitchell, is, is, um, is, the, is one of the highlights, right? Drinking a cup of coffee, breakfast, more of the conversations in the hallways as much as the sessions. I consider that education what I call semi-formal. So the formal education is what you're, you've been quite a keen enthusiast of and, and I do, which is you come, you learn, you have to give information back, you get tested and assessed and poked and prodded, and then you get your C license or your national diploma or your UA for B. I really believe in that for those of us like yourself and myself who are making a living in the game. That's the formal. The semi-formal is the convention, um, maybe a club day at Harbor where you bring in a guest coach, maybe the state association runs something, maybe the Seattle Sounders or the Rain do a coach's day and you come down and you watch and you get given handouts and curriculums and content, but you're not asked to, you're not being assessed or tested yourself. So it's quite safe. That's, that's the second type of education. And then in my crude um, explanation, the last one is informal and that is the best one. That is going for a cup of coffee with your assistant coach after a good competitive game, maybe going, and nobody ever does it, right? You go for a cup of coffee with the, the other coach of the other youth team that you just played, right? So if you've both got kids on the team, you're probably both going to go to Starbucks. Instead of sitting looking across at each other awkwardly in the Starbucks, sit down together and talk about the game. Put your egos aside and talk about that. Um, so informal is any time when you get to talk about coaching and it's a conversation, an exchange of ideas, a chat. That's my favorite. That can happen at our convention. So our convention is very much semi-formal, informal. And that's why I think it's why it's able to capture such a massive audience. Um, and, and I'll leave you with this one as far as this goes. Um, the words excellent, elite, expert are very overused in what we do for a living. So you can go and buy something online right now, the expert coaching methodology. Everybody's got an academy, right? However, if I come and coach the coaches in Harbor, I'm going to bring them with a lot of experience and a lot of coaching badge. I'm going to bring you good content, hopefully. I'm going to share it with you. 
And I get that right because I'm experienced. You then have to look at it and go, well, I know how many kids I get at training. I know how often we train. I know the social dynamic of my parent group. I know the expectations of my club. I know what the knackered equipment I've got is. I'm going to take Ian's ideas and I'm going to make them Mitchell's ideas. I'm going to discard a lot of Ian's ideas, but I'm going to take some of his and I'm going to morph them into mine because yeah. I, believe, I believe this passionately. Every coach out there who's listening and thinking is the, is the expert in their environment. They can absolutely be helped and supported, but nobody knows your environment better than you. So never be afraid of this is too high for me. This is above my level. Go and get some of that content because anybody that's willing to put themselves into an environment, listen to your podcast, listen to other things, go to places, they're already way ahead of the coaching curve because the majority of coaches, the vast majority of coaches don't try informal, semi-formal or formal learning. So all of you, anybody that's doing that is already way up in my book and deserves respect and credit. Yeah. And again, any coaches that are from grassroots all the way up to professional environment, if you've never been to the convention, you should do it because this this is a great learning tool. Um, okay, Ian, so I'll finish off with a couple of questions mm -hmm. regarding these personal questions. I usually ask these to, uh, to everyone on the year uh, that I've done so far. And who, who do you, who's the best player you've had a chance or opportunity to coach? Um, I'm proud to say that because of ODP, um, people like Michael Bradley and Brad Guzan have come through programs that I've worked with. Um, so top, top American uh, national team players that come out of the Midwest. Um, Tony Sarna, who was a big star of our 2002 team. I didn't really coach him so much as he kicked me. And we played against each other in the league in, in, in uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin. But Guzan, Bradley... Um, I'm trying to think of other guys from region two. There's guys in the league now like Raymond Garris, uh, Gaddis, who's big in the uh, um, MLS Black Players Lives Coalition. There was a very good player with Seattle. He played at Seattle too, Ray Sari. I think Ray was out of Missouri. He um, just finishing up his career at USL in uh, Oklahoma. Um, yeah, lots of, lots of guys who've played MLS. Jesse Marsh. Um, oh, yeah. I did coach Jesse Marsh who uh, was one of the highlights of convention. Um, he's currently coaching uh, Salzburg in uh, Austria and coached in the Champions League. He's the first American to coach in the Champions League. And he was on my under 15 ODP team and ended up playing for the national team. So he was a good one. Um, so yeah, I've been quite fortunate um, to run into a lot of boys, but for me, it was all through um, ODP. In the division one college setting, we won the national championship. Um, back in 95 and a number of those young men were, for, were first class, the first entry class into MLS. So people wouldn't recognize their names, but they were, they were the best players in America at the time. Um, but that was in a different era. Wow. Awesome. There's some big names in there. Some really big yeah, names some, in America. Some good ones. Yeah. Soccer. I, I, I can't say I had that much to do with it. I was really um, steering, but you do a bit of steering, right? So um, there's a story about Brad Guzan. I probably, I can quickly tell it to you real quick. Um, Brad Guzan, 14, 15 years old. He was the third selection on our team, but one guy dropped out. So he came with us to Brazil. He played for Chicago Magic. Brad, I, I, I've met Brad a few times since. He won't mind me telling. Um, he, was, he played center back, 
one game, goalkeeper the next, because they had really good goalies, so they rotated him. So he wasn't he wasn't a full-time goalkeeper at 15, 14, 15, and he wasn't the top goalkeeper in our region, but we took him to Brazil, and he was giant. He was massive. And one day he comes down, and his legs are all scarred up, and they're poisoned and really horrible, and then we got a trainer. And so we had thought that he'd been diving around on the fields in, in uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and he'd got like chiggers or some sort of infection. We found out later that the kids in the room, the game was Brad Guzan would sit down on the carpet in all fours, and then they would all jump on him. And it was the game was to see how quickly he could throw them all off because he was so much bigger and stronger. And in doing so, he took the skin off of both his legs, which meant that he was less likely to be able to play on this elite tour to Brazil. So that was Brad Guzan. So my contribution to his career was getting him horribly injured because we weren't managing the dorm situation and then having a trainer that cleaned his wounds out. So that, that's, that's how much contribution I made. But um, those are the nice little stories because Michael Bradley... Uh, little story we were at a place called um coco beach expo coco expo it was an unbelievable place in florida and the only thing for the kids was a 7-eleven about half a mile down the road and michael won't remember this but they were 14 15 and they wanted to go to the 7-eleven so i walked them down chaperoned them down they get their gatorade we're walking back and we saw an, an alligator in a storm drain so right away, Michael Bradley drops his Gatorade and chases this damn alligator down a storm drain. And I'm like, he wasn't, I mean, he was Bob's son at the time, right? We were very aware who Bob was, his father. So we didn't want to lose him because we were afraid his dad would end our careers. But that was Michael Bradley chasing alligators when he was 15. And then he goes on and plays for Roma and is a big MLS star and a national team player. So they're kids, right? That's nice. That's the nice thing about coaching them when they're kids. Yeah, that's, that's some pretty cool stories. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry about got a bit long, but sorry. So you, you might upset a few people with this one, but mm -hmm. <laughs> who is the best coach you've had the pleasure to work with and why? Um, there are four coaches who've had a huge influence on my career. Um, and we didn't have a formal mentorship, mentor relationship. The first one was a guy called Jim Launder, head coach of Wisconsin, who hired me first. Jim is still coaching uh, in the USL with Forward Madison and um, still works Olympic development with me. So Jim was a big influence. A guy called Fred Schmaltz, who was the legendary coach of Evansville Division One in Indiana, hired me onto ODP. That was huge. Tim Carter, who was most recently with Minnesota uh, United Academy, but was with US Soccer at the time, uh, recommended me for the job at Minnesota as the state DOC. And then there was a guy called John Leaney um, who hired me to coach at McAllister with him. And he'd been there for a hundred years and, and um, is still living there in the community, but not coaching. Those four guys gave me my big, big opportunities. Obviously around that time I've worked with, um, I've been in the presence of arena at different times and Bob Bradley at different times, um, very minimal, very, very minimal roles, lots of MLS coaches, um, that I've worked with lots of guys in USL like John Pascarella at Oklahoma. So I've, I've been fortunate. And then obviously I've, I've had audiences and been in the environments watching Mourinho work and Klopp work and things like that. Um, so I'm not going to give a single name. <laughs> okay. I'll give you a single name if you want to at the end. What the, a couple of these guys. Okay. There's two of the guys I mentioned. 
John Leaney from, uh, from uh, East London, Manchester College, came to this country, at the time a confirmed bachelor, a grumpy, miserable little man who coached the men's and women's Division Three teams at McAllister and 100% embraced the environment and then turned it inside out and made it his environment or his club's the club team environment for the men and women's team. Absolutely immersed in his environment and ownership of his environment. Fred Schmoltz at Evansville, um, an American coach from Saint, originally from St. Louis. Evansville is pretty much the smallest Division I school in America. Um, he brought in a lot of international players and then recruited heavily domestically. He had, he had elite teams. They went to two Final Fours around the time that Alexi Lalas was a player. And he was another guy that saw his environment, embraced his environment, and, and ultimately became the sort of um, the watchman, if you will, the caretaker for that environment. So some of the most impressive coaches I've seen are ones who have embraced their environment and then taken ownership of it and then added to it. And if you look at the convention last week, the Mourinho presentation was very good. Emma Hayes's was excellent, Laura Harvey's. But the one that reminds me most of people I've worked with closely was the Jesse Marsh one with um, Red Bull Salzburg. So Jesse understood Red Bull in New York. He understood Red Bull in Leipzig. And now he's understands Red Bull in Salzburg. And now he's added the Jesse Marsh magic to it. Mm. And for me, those are the most impressive coaches who are completely comfortable in their own skin. And, um, and then their own skin is also defined by the broader environment. So uh, Fred Schmaltz and um, John Leaney, if they ever get to listen to this podcast, they get, the, they get that shout out. <laughs> and you can Google them and find out all about them. There's video and story. So Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Well, Ian, thank you so much for coming on and chatting to me today. Uh, You're welcome. I honestly can't thank you enough because I, I imagine your schedule is pretty crazy, especially uh, this time of year, right? Well, yeah. So the convention just takes up all your time that <laughs> week. Um, for my colleagues that run the convention, it's just a year-round process, right? They're right yeah. back in. And then for those of us that just work the convention largely, now we go back to the, the real job, which is um, full-time ed. And we're doing a lot of our content now blended. So everything we're doing right now is in a remote format. So people are getting, so what we've done is we've taken that for the typical 40 hour courses and we've put 25 of it into a virtual environment. And then as soon as we're COVID free, we're gonna meet all of the coaches for like a long weekend. So we're able, so what we've got now is we've got rolling enrollment in our courses, which is fantastic. So we get new people signing up every day and then we're giving them, pushing them content. And then we're doing live chat rooms every other month. And then as soon as we're COVID free, we'll meet them in person in their environments more regionally. And then the final assessment, they'll video themselves and they'll send us a video of themselves. So this is, COVID has actually been quite interesting because it's given us this opportunity to develop a new format. And the new format is not just COVID friendly, it's actually friendly to many, many coaches who are part-time um, or don't have a lot of financial resources and also have different learning styles. So the blended courses we're doing are being really really positive awesome yeah i mean i look more into those yeah the, you i think you i think you'd i think having chatted with you before the, the blended premiere might be something you would really really enjoy yeah absolutely yeah okay again well thank you ian i really You're appreciate welcome. it